Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 192, Online Jewish Learning. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And today, as we continue our education series, we're going to explore an educational organization that's near and dear to our hearts because it's trying to do its work over the internet. Our guest today, Danielle, or Danny Eskow, is the co-founder and CEO of Online Jewish Learning which was founded with the goal of providing every Jewish student with access to a meaningful education that is interactive and fun. I emphasize access because online Jewish learning is about the content, and it's also about the access. Because they do all their work online, they're able to provide the opportunity for students anywhere in the world to learn with their teachers from the comfort of their very own home. As they put it, their teachers use interactive and innovative online teaching methods to bring Jewish education into the home, providing a convenient option for families far from synagogues or overbooked with hectic schedules. Also, as they put it, without the hassle of getting to and from your lessons, your time will be better spent on the high-quality learning that OnlineJewishLearning.com provides through their programs, which include Hebrew School at Home programs, B'mitzvah preparation, Hebrew reading, and adult education. Our guest, Danny Eskow, has rabbinical ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary, and unlike most of the organizations that we interview here on Judaism Unbound, Online Jewish Learning is actually not a nonprofit organization. It's a for-profit company. Now, we don't have a policy of interviewing mostly nonprofit organizations here. It's just that most Jewish organizations are nonprofit organizations, but maybe that's not the way it has to be, and maybe that's not even the best way for it to be. We're going to get into some of that conversation with Danny Eskow during this conversation. So let's jump right into it. Danny Eskow, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you. It's so great to be here with both of you. So let's start by learning a little bit about what online Jewish learning is. Who am I when I'm potentially finding out about it and thinking that I might want to use this? And what happens to me once I make that potential decision? Sure, absolutely. Um, So just a little bit of background about us. So I started online Jewish learning about 10 years ago. Now, uh, we were originally called My Bar Mitzvah Tutors, which we quickly realized was not a great name for what we do. And we had 30 students. We were basically, you know, begging cousins and family members and friends to throw us a kid for free so we could test out this model. And we quickly realized that there were families all over the world who did not have access to normative Jewish institutions. And because of that, their kids were not getting a Jewish education. And so we developed a basic Hebrew school at home program um, for these students who did not live near synagogues. So it started initially because we had a student who lived three hours outside of Seattle for his mom's job, and they did not have a synagogue and couldn't schlep three hours to a synagogue. And so I started on the phone with him, and then we started with Skype. I'm dating myself. Skype was the cool technology to use at the time. And then I realized that there were students and families all over the world who could benefit from something like this. 
the bar and bat mitzvah experience was a huge experience in my life. That's actually when I decided I wanted to become a rabbi initially. And I wanted to bring the meaning back into that for students and to try in some small way to make it not about the party and to make it about the Jewish learning and to give them a transformative experience at that age in their lives. And so that's really what propelled me in this direction. And also Jewish outreach to reach people who are in places that feel that the Jewish community might not necessarily want them or know where they are and to bring them into some sort of community together online. And this past year is our 10th year and we have over 350 active students this year, uh, to about 20 synagogues who are partnering with us and about 40 part-time Jewish educators. Uh, so we've really seen a huge shift in going from primarily unaffiliated families to almost half and half, or I'd say half of our families are not members of synagogues for a variety of reasons, and half of our families are members of synagogues. So when we work with synagogues, we, we do that in a variety of different ways. Um, but what we do is we white label our program. And what that means is that our name is not on it. Our branding is not on it. And the reason why we do that is because it keeps the program connected to the community. And our main goal is to bridge the gap between the actual physical synagogue and what the learning and community that happens there and the home. Because we know most families today are two-income families. Both parents are working. And it's hard to schlep kids back and forth with all their extracurriculars and everything that's going on. So we're seeing you know, in the landscape that a lot of synagogues have gone down to once a week Hebrew school. And obviously we can't even accomplish what we want in two days of Hebrew school. And so what we've seen with some of our partners is they have one day that's in person and one day that's online. The students sign up for a lesson at any time that works for them except for Shabbat. And they'll work with a teacher live in a Zoom classroom where they will see the content on the screen and also see their teacher. And we have these students meeting with us, especially with our synagogue partners, once a week or twice a week for half an hour at a time. And that's one-on-one -on -one learning. Some of our partner synagogues have done small group classes. And what we do with them is we do a skills assessment at the beginning, and then we match kids into different classes based on their skill level and also their schedule requests. And then we do like three to four kids in a class with one teacher once a week. And usually it matches up with the weeks of religious school. It sounds like, for the most part, this is one-on-one -on -one learning. So can you explain how that works? I mean, do you have teachers that are spread all over the time zones of the world so that right. that can be facilitated? And, and, and why do you do it one-on-one -on -one as opposed to pushing a small group's approach, which might seem more economical? But, actually, but then what happens there? What is the interaction like? Sure. So when someone signs up from our program, there's a whole process that happens. And so a lot of people, I'm talking more about like individuals and families, when synagogues sign up, it's different. So someone signs up, we call them, we do an intake about who they are. If it's an adult student, what they want to learn, uh, you know, a child, what, you know, what their background is, where they live, if they're affiliated with the community, um, what their learning style is. And then what we'll do is we'll set up an initial lesson, um, which is half an hour at a time that works best for them, where we're basically going to get to know the student and the way that they learn and also enable the family to kind of see what it's like to learn with us. And then we will set them up for lessons and I will kind of schedule out what the curriculum is for the student. And then the student will have the sessions with the teacher. And it's the same teacher for the whole program. We very rarely switch unless there's a scheduling conflict. And after every session, the student and the family gets an email saying what was done in the session, you know, what the homework is, and the time of the next session. And so what we're trying to do here is make Jewish learning and Hebrew school learning as easy as possible for the families, not in terms of content, 
but in terms of breaking away any barriers to actually doing it, right? Because people can say, oh, I have soccer, I have competitive swimming and gymnastics, I can't get to Hebrew school. If you can do it online at any time that works for you, you really can't come up with a reason to not learn and have a Jewish learning experience. And if you can, then you're really trying very hard to have that happen. And so, you know, with our families, we have families who live all over the world in Okinawa, Japan, military families. We have a family in Qatar. So with those families uh, in the Philippines, you know, the timing is a little bit more difficult, but we do have teachers in Israel and we have teachers all over the U.S. in the different time zones. So we've actually never had a student that we had to say no to because of timing. I think the closest was the Philippines. And we had a teacher who had a young child and said, I'm up at five in the morning anyway, like I'll do the session. I have two inverse questions that each come with the risk of like asking you for like a pitch, but like, I, I don't mean it that way, but I'm going to throw it out. So side one of the coin, um, th- this is something we wrestle with all the time and hear from folks all the time about because we're also a digital project. Um, like, how could this work? You know, I, at the risk of sounding like right. a, like a straw man version of somebody asking the question, like, how could you possibly simulate what happens in a classroom environment, in a digital environment? Like, what does it look like to achieve that? How could you even consider it? And what does it look like to achieve that? And then sort of inverse, once again, switching the script a little bit, like assuming for those who actually it's very intuitive that this could work, Mm -hmm. like why go with your program? Why, Why go with like an organized institutional kind of situation like online Jewish learning when they could just like find somebody anywhere in the world who's a really talented teacher and have them Zoom with their child on a regular basis. Right. Um, like, what is it, like, why is it beneficial to have more of the institutional infrastructure than if you were to just set it up more independently? Those are really good questions. Okay, so the first one. Um, so in terms of, I think that's the hardest thing to do is to simulate community online. And I think that's a lot of the pushback we get from individuals and communities is, you know, my kid's the only Jewish kid for miles and, you know, how are they going to feel part of something doing something online, right? And I want them to feel part of a Jewish community. And we also get that from synagogues. And so the synagogue piece, that's why we white label it. And we, you know, the, the synagogue thinks, or the families in the synagogue think that I am the online director of that synagogue's learning, right? So we try to make it really connected to the synagogue. But in terms of the, you know, the families that aren't members of synagogues or other Jewish institutions, you know, it's hard. The, the ideal is that everyone belongs to a synagogue that meets all of their needs and that it is easy for them to be part of that community. Reality on the ground is that's impossible, right? You know, I'm a member of a community and even sometimes I'm not happy as a rabbi, right? So there's, it's never going to really happen, unfortunately. And so what we try to do is by matching a student with a teacher and keeping that teacher for the whole program. Um, and our teachers are really young, passionate Jewish educators I feel like that creates a relationship that's really worthwhile um, and gives these students who might not have a lot of Jewish, you know, people in their lives or role models, um, you know, this experience of, oh, it's a cool young Jewish person who's like really into Judaism and that's cool. And, you know, that's, that's exciting to me. We also sometimes do where we connect families from different places with other families if they want to do that kind of like, you know, we've had a couple like pen pals, for example of students living in different places. And we also used to do holiday classes where we would offer free holiday classes and students from all over the world would come on. Um, And then we realized with the different 
time zones, that was very, very difficult. Um, so what we try to do when someone signs up with us is connect them with a local community. If that doesn't work for a variety of reasons, then we just do everything we can to make them feel welcomed and loved and appreciated where they are Jewishly within the online Jewish learning community. Um, I do want to say that we are not trying to replace regular, you know, normative Jewish institutions and communities. That's not the goal. The goal is to be a supplement um, and something that, you know, becomes a community for people who don't have one. And then your second question was, um, why would you go with, I, I like that we're an institution. That's kind of cool. You know, I feel like after all these years, we were fighting to like have a name out there. I feel very cool that you used that word with me. But, you know, why would you go with OJL versus, you know, finding a really learned teacher online somewhere in the world? And the reason why I think you should go with us there's many reasons. The first is the teachers that we hire are really those people that you're talking about looking for. We hire the best, passionate Jewish educators that are out there looking to you know, spread their Torah in the world as well, to spread their learning. Um, and we look for people that are really good at working with the age group. The majority of the kids, people that we work with are between the ages of, I'd say, 9 and 15. Um, we do have adult students as well. Um, so we're really picky about who we hire. And so, you know, that's one benefit of working with us. Um, the other is that we completely customize our curriculum for every student. And I feel if you're working just with like a one person shop, you may not necessarily get the, have the ability, you know, because there's just one person to have a fully customized curriculum, right? So none of our, you know, we have a standard curriculum that we use that we created in terms of like the Hebrew reading and the prayer fluency, et cetera. But if a student's really interested in Jewish history, we will create a curriculum for that student. And they can focus on that while they're doing their bar and bat mitzvah learning or their Hebrew learning. And so you're really getting a very high touch, um, personal experience working with us. But then you get the benefit of like a professional back end um, where everything is really managed very tightly and well so that you're not saying my teacher didn't show up or my teacher's sick. Okay, well, we have a substitute who's ready to take over that lesson. So your student doesn't miss out. So it, it sounds like the, the primary areas where you expect most students to be focusing is on Hebrew and prayers. Uh, I'd love it if you could expand on that a little bit to say, like, what is the nature of that curriculum? What are the goals? I, I suppose I'm also I'm asking a question about the present and also the future. I'd love to understand a little bit in the present what is available, let's say, if you're not designing a, a special curriculum, right. but just for the typical person, what are you currently, what have you currently developed? What's your development process like? And I guess my question is, um, we often talk about online Jewish stuff as being in its infancy. And so the expectation should be that most things that are happening primarily online are still early stage, and we expect them to be a lot different and better in the future. So I'd love to know a little bit about what you imagine might be possible 10 years from now for online Jewish learning and perhaps other analogous type of organizations that are doing learning in virtual spaces. So it's interesting this, you know, you say that it, it is still true in the Jewish world that online learning is in its infancy. So that's true. And we started 10 years ago. So you can imagine what it was like 10 years ago when we started. I, I don't want to say we're, we're definitely not like visionaries or whatever, right? But, you know, we were before the time. And so that was great because we got into the space and really, you know, um, you know, kind of rooted ourselves in there, but also people were looking at us 10 years ago, like, what are you doing online? Are you kidding? Like, this can't happen. This is like awful. It's a threat to our communities. And now 10 years later, people are saying, wow, this is great. This can actually help 
this type of family or this student or this situation. In terms, to go back, in terms of the actual curriculum, so my sister and I created this curriculum, again, started it 10 years ago, and it was my sister who created the Hebrew curriculum. And what we did was we were testing different software out of Israel. We said, why recreate the wheel? Let's support other companies. Let's use something that they have. And we realized that, you know, things worked well here and there, but what we found we were doing with our students is we were using English to teach Hebrew decoding. And that we found, we did a test. We had some students use one program, some students use a different program, and then we kind of started using what we were creating. And we would use English to teach Hebrew, which again, like I know, you tell any person who has studied how to teach Hebrew, they'll tell you this is Mishigas, this is crazy, you know, this is not the way that you teach Hebrew. But we say, okay, like throw all of the theory away and see what actually works with these students. And they learn Hebrew like three times faster in terms of decoding. And so we created our own curriculum based on decoding. And kids have a lot of fun with it. They learn Hebrew a lot faster. Um, we use a lot of games and trivia and, you know, pop culture references. So kids are laughing while they're learning Hebrew, right? We, the goal is to make it not miserable. So the majority of our students start with the Hebrew curriculum. And we've created a Judaics curriculum as well. So I'd say the majority of our students right now are doing Hebrew decoding, prayer, tefillah, prayer fluency. Um, Hebrew conversation is something that we're seeing a lot of now, especially with adult students, which is great. Um, obviously, bar and bat mitzvah training. And a lot of our students are interested that are either post-day school students or post-b'nai mitzvah. Um, they are going to be, you know, a lot of them want to learn like, the Torah with commentary or a specific period in Jewish history. So we've started developing curriculum for that because we see there's a lot of people who are interested in it. You know, I'd like to see, again, going back to the 10 years from now question, um, one of the projects that we developed last year was an on-demand video series because all of our classes are synchronous. All of our classes happen in real time. But we, you know, we're thinking maybe there are people out there who don't want to learn with a teacher and would rather just watch a video and follow along with the text and teach themselves. And so we developed a 11 video series that's for sale on our website. Um, our students get it for free where people can watch me singing these different prayers. And along the bottom of the screen, you can see the Hebrew text and you kind of can follow along with it like a really cool Jewish music video. So we have that and we've actually seen a lot of interest in that people are purchasing it that are not our students. So we're trying to give different options. I would like to see that, you know, there's a, a big group of students who like to learn that way and we can develop more videos on different content. But I really think that our, our niche is the live learning, the high touch, you know, learning where people feel like this is their program, this is their teacher, and it's really all about who they are Jewishly. I want to run with uh, laugh while they learn. I, that's like yeah. that's like the tagline of the century. I heard, I thought of the Snow White whistle while you work situation right. when you said that laugh while you learn. Yeah, whistle except it says Snow White, you have um, a female rabbi, and well, know. yeah, well, so, uh, who says Snow White's not a rabbi? Hey, I'm, um, I'm I'm very pale. That's fine with me. I'm good with that. Yeah, there you go. Um, so laughing while you learn. Um, I want to run with this because when I think about if I were creating an online pathway of Jewish learning, the biggest stumbling block or one of the stumbling blocks I can truly envision, much as I do think that there's such an important need for those things, is how you pull off the elements of like a Hebrew school setting or some form of group learning setting where you're doing like group activities and games or literally, you know, constructing something with art materials, like things that sometimes you could do on your own, but which are greatly enhanced when you do them with a team. And so much 
of learning, especially at younger ages, but even as you get into middle school, even as you hopefully get into high school, is around group work. And so um, I'm curious what it looks like to pull that off in an online context. And also, in addition to being curious, I'm going to selfishly plug something I did because I, I think that this is something other places should look to do. I worked for the Institute of Southern Jewish Life for a couple of years, wandering around to synagogues, mostly with small religious schools. And I worked with the congregation in Pinehurst, North Carolina, which had in the whole school, I think, 15 or 20 kids. Um, and it was actually sort of a, a deep worry for folks in the community that these kids wouldn't have, they wouldn't have a sense that sort of there's Jews all over the place that are also doing this. They're so isolated and in all their schools, they're sort of the only Jews. And so we ran a scavenger hunt. We, we set up a program with a congregation in South Carolina. So half of them were in South Carolina, half of them were in North Carolina. We Skyped each other. Half the clues were hidden in one synagogue. Half the clues were hidden in the other synagogue. And they had teammates in the other state where they had to like be in touch with them to figure and like each clue had like a you had to unscramble a word clue or whatever and then figure out what the answer was um but what i'm getting at is that i think that it's possible to do you know even a scavenger hunt the kind of thing that would be hardest to do in an online context in an online context so i'm curious like have you played around with some of that do your partner communities in utah talk to your partner communities in massachusetts do they do programs together do your kids that are on their own one-on-one -on -one in x place hang out with the ones in y place and also to the extent that you're willing like what are the genuine difficulties that are really really hard to to overcome online even as you work to do so Right. Each day, each week. Well, that scavenger hunt thing sounds really cool. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so good job on that one. Yes, you're on that. Um, so, you know, the hardest thing is building community online. That is the biggest challenge. That and I think the to speak to your question about challenges, um, the biggest challenge for us is scalability um, as a business, as a you know program, because I love being high touch. I know every one of our families. I've spoken to every single family in our program. I can tell you where they live, and there's 350 students, so that's really hard. Um, I couldn't do that with 500 students. I couldn't do that with 1,000 students, and I can't clone myself. I have three young children under the age of five. I wish I could have cloned myself by now. It's impossible, right? So in order to scale, I have to let go a little bit. Right. So that's something that we struggle with. Um, and just to give a short story example, you know, we had a family in Massachusetts who didn't belong to a synagogue for a variety of reasons. And um, they both sons went through our program and their grandfather was dying and he was really, really sick. And the mother called me. I hadn't spoken to her in a year since they finished our program. And she was still on our email list, but we hadn't spoken. And she called me and she said, you know, you're our rabbi. Like, what do I do? Should I let my son see him in the hospital? I don't want their last memory to be about him so sick. Like, I need your advice. What do I do? And I actually remember I was in an airport coming home from teaching somewhere and I just got the chills. I still have the chills right now because I was like, wow, you know, these people feel so connected to us. And, you know, we are there for them, not just to teach their kids for bar and bat mitzvah, but when a family member is dying, they call us right, to help with that experience. And it was just really powerful to see the impact that we had had on them from welcoming them in as they were, from not saying you have to be part of the community that lives down the street from you, from just embracing them. They really felt that they could come back to us and, and be part of us. Um, 
So with respect to the question about creating community online, you know, as I said, that is the biggest, the biggest challenge. When we do work with partners, obviously the kids that are seeing each other in person on a Sunday are learning together in a small group on a Tuesday, you know, that is still creating their community that they're used to. But for, you know, people living all over the world who don't necessarily live in Jewish communities, you know, we are all they have. Um, and so it is a big responsibility on us to make them feel part of a greater Jewish community, but that's hard to do when you're just learning with one teacher online, you know, twice a week. And so what we try to do is we try to connect them with other Jewish experiences that may be going on in their extended community. We try to um, encourage people to do you know, community service projects to at least feel that piece of community, whether it's Jewish or not. So it's, it's difficult, but we really do try to do those things. I've toyed with the idea, like I said before, of creating kind of like online pals. You know, a student living in Japan can be talking with a student in Boston. The only issue is because most of our students are minors. I'm not quite sure how that would work out in terms of monitoring the conversation and online and all of that. And so we've kind of begun, you know, the early stages of thinking about how we can create a platform for students to do that. Um, but, you know, all the issues with like chat rooms, etc. So we just have to figure out how to do that, you know, in the right way, um, that it would be successful. But we really do want to connect families from different places. Also, because when you're living in Qatar, there really aren't that many other people around you that you can experience Judaism with. And so it's really important that we feel that we can kind of reconnect them and bring them back um, on this end as well. So tell us a little bit about the story of how you came to create online Jewish learning. And also, I'm interested in some of the early response to it and how you dealt with it. You mentioned earlier a little bit that there was resistance at first from certain quarters, and that's to be expected. So I'm really curious also about the story of how you dealt with that resistance early on and then and then over time. But but let's start just with the story of how you as a graduate from rabbinical school and specifically the conservative movements rabbinical school, how do you come to create something that's uh, not the norm for what people are expected to do when they graduate from rabbinical school? So I was actually in my third year of rabbinical school when I started online Jewish learning. I was working in the city. I was teaching at different Hebrew schools. I was tutoring for Bar and Bat Mitzvah. Um, and I really, first of all, didn't like going into people's apartments all over the city. I was tired of schlepping everywhere, you know. And I also, um, that summer, was studying with this student through the seminary, through JTS. They have a listserv where, you know, people post jobs. And I was working with this student outside of, um, in Washington. And so I started teaching him on the phone um, and then on Skype. And then it kind of, you know, the wheels started turning in my head. And I said, you know, I want to do something really creative with my rabbinate. And so I kind of been bitten by the entrepreneur bug. Um, I grew up with my dad as a businessman, and I just wanted to do something cool with my Jewish experience and with my rabbinate. And so I started online Jewish learning, and it was really hard at the beginning because I was in rabbinical school, you know, and I was managing all that homework and course load, et cetera, while also starting a company. And so the first year was really tough in terms of logistics and how do you start a company and how do you grow it and how do you make it meaningful, right? Because, you know, I say that as we had talked about, it's a for-profit company, but we have a nonprofit heart. You know, you don't see a lot of for-profit companies in the Jewish education space. And the primary reason why we started, you know, that way was because that's what I know, right? I grew up with a business person for a parent. And so it didn't take a lot of overhead to start the company. We just needed a website, right? And we didn't pay ourselves in the beginning. Um, and 
selfishly, I didn't want to deal with a board, right? And all that mishigas, all that craziness. And, and we could fund it ourselves based on the fact that it didn't take a lot of overhead in the beginning. Um, we got a lot of pushback because of that. First of all, I would, you know, I would like cold call synagogues and try to like make a connection as a conservative rabbi with other rabbis. And I felt like a car salesman, right? Like I was like selling this program and it, it didn't feel good initially, right? Because like my, my neshama, my soul was in the right place, right? I was trying to give them easily accessible Jewish learning, but it felt like I wasn't doing the right thing, right? And so I kind of backed off from trying to get synagogues on board in the beginning. And then I kind of call it like, my online Jewish learning lishma, right? The stuff that I need to like feel fulfilled as a rabbi was the synagogue stuff as well. Um, and we would get there eventually. And so for the first five years, it was really unaffiliated families, which actually like filled my soul just as much, if not more, because these people felt so lost in the Jewish community. Some of them didn't even realize they wanted what they wanted, which was Jewish learning. Um, so, you know, we had a lot of families, we have a lot of interfaith families a lot of families where the mom is not Jewish specifically, um, who felt, you know, pushed away by tons of synagogues where, you know, they were accepted initially when their kids were in preschool and now it's bar and bat mitzvah time and they're being told their kids aren't Jewish enough or they would have to undergo conversion. And so for some families, that's not fair to them or not, a, not what they want, right? And so, you know, what we do is we'll match, you know, if they're unaffiliated, we'll match them with a, a rabbi that's willing to do a ceremony. And, you know, we make them feel that who they are Jewishly is perfectly right for them. I want to flag as a really important note, the, the brief note you, you said about how it's often specifically interfaith families where a mom is not Jewish and a dad is Jewish. I'm just going to flag for those who haven't listened to our episode with Karen McGinnity from way, way back when. Um, she does a great job unpacking um, in all of her work sort of gender differences along the interfaith set of questions that we sometimes just sort of group in one big category, but actually there's a lot to unpack in terms of families where a man is not Jewish, where a woman is not Jewish. We could go into non-heteronormative relationships too, but um, listen to that one. So question time. Um, let's talk more about the for-profit points that you started to open up. Um, I think it is a live and important conversation to enter into. Um, for a lot of people, for-profit education is uh, pushes a lot of buttons and and to be frank, like I, I'm, I'm somebody for whom like the jury's out a little bit on how I feel about for-profit Jewish education and, and for-profit broader education. And so I'd love to hear what you would say to folks who see a for-profit before, who hear company, for example. I've been hearing you say company and it's like a funny feeling. That's why I try to say program because then it's kind of yeah. vague. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, but you've been saying company, which right. is the accurate term to describe what you're doing. Right. Um, but it's like this funny, squeamish thing in me that's like, ah, company. We're talking about a Jewish organization that's a company. Right. Um, and I, I'm both aware that like maybe I should unpack what's making me feel squeamish and also kind of want to defend it to some extent because I think that there is an important set of possibilities that open up specifically when something is a nonprofit organization. So right. what would you say um, to those who are concerned? Um, so that's like the defensive set of questions, but also like what would you highlight independent of of the the skeptics, like why this is a really great model for folks? 
Sure. So again, you know, the primary reason we went for profit is just because it's what I know. And I also kind of wanted to start something Jewish that could make money. And I don't mean that in like a obnoxious way. Um, I think that Jewish companies, Jewish, there should be Jewish companies that are successful. There should be ways that you can be a Jewish person and a business person and that that sinks, right? That that meshes well together. And for me, you know, I, I love the freedom of being for profit because I could just say, I want to do this. I want to try this. And I, did, I wouldn't have to go through a board, right? I do have advisors. I have great advisors that are both in the Jewish world and the, the secular world. There were times, honestly, where I thought about switching to be a nonprofit um, because, you know, when you want to grow and you want to become a bigger company, you know, it's hard when you don't have the capital, right? And I didn't want to go into like venture funding and like all these different things, you know, and when you're a nonprofit, it's easier to get grants, right? Um, and so I thought about that, but I really do think that our business thrives because it is a business and it's run like a business and it is a, you know, for-profit. Look, you know, someone once asked me, you know, what do you do when business needs and Jewish needs kind of, you know, come head to head, right? Like, what if you have a student who can't afford your program? Um, and so it's really difficult when those things happen, but I lead the company, right? I lead a business with a Jewish mind and heart. And that's the way that it stays consistent with what our mission is. And why shouldn't a business that does that be successful financially, right? And enable us to hire more people and to give more jobs to young Jewish people that are in graduate school and are, you know, teaching a million different Hebrew schools. Why should they have to do that? Why can't they just teach online, make a good living teaching for us? And it's hard. You know, I think the people that are skeptics, Lex, this is not against you, but I think people who are skeptical is just because none of us have ever, you know, all of us have grown up with the Jewish world being nonprofit. It doesn't even enter our minds that there would be a successful company that would be Jewish. Um, and I'd like to try to change that, you know, in my small way. I think that the skeptics are skeptical because it just hasn't really been done that much. Um, and when you hear for profit, you hear big company, doesn't care, only about money. And, and that's not who we are. When we've had students who can't afford it, we help them. Can you just help me understand one more dimension of the for profit versus nonprofit? I'm just thinking other than the kind of philosophical dimensions. Can you explain, is there a way in which it actually allows the launch to be more successful to do it as a for-profit? Because I'm just in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I was for-profit, maybe I would be a little hungrier or something. I would be a little more desperate, but um, but I would just be denying myself one source of, of potential revenue, which is donations or grants. Where so? What's the advantage? You know, and I and I guess I'd love to understand that better. Uh, again, maybe right. for selfish reasons. Right. So it's interesting. For a point in time, my husband and I were both running startups, for-profit startups, and that was a very interesting time. Let's just say, <laughs> you know. But I think part of what you're saying is truth, right? Which is that I was hungrier, right? Because this was all on me. I was the sole person who had to make sure that this was going to succeed. And the only person who was going to suffer if it didn't was me. Right. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, it's hard to be your own boss. You know, I had to get up and I had to do this and I had to, you know, make the calls and, and the asks and all these different things and, and make sure that we had enough money to pay the tutors, right. Other people are relying on me um, and they have families. Right. And so for me, it was like a force that drove me. Um, I feel like, I would still feel that way if I was getting money from other organizations. Um, but I also know, and I've heard this from other people who are in the ed tech space in the Jewish world, is it's harder to get grants for Jewish education that are outside the synagogue than it is to get grants for like 
medical issues in Israel, right? There's so much that needs money in the Jewish space that, you know, I felt kind of like if I could do this, if I could self-fund this in terms of like, you know, the company makes money and continues to like self-fund itself, which that's a lot of itself there, but um, you know what I mean? Then I'm also not taking away from grants going to other organizations as well, you know? So, um, you know, again, about five years ago, we toyed with going back and going to nonprofit and it just, there weren't enough reasons to do it. I'm curious to ask about adult education. So in wandering around your website, um, what I noticed was twofold. One, there are adult education options that you offer, but my impression, and you can correct me if this impression is wrong, is that it's not quite the core offering that you're doing. The core, like more of the core offering that you're doing is, is focused on students. You know, you mentioned between nine and 15 largely. Um, and so I wanted to ask, um, on the one hand, like what do the adult education programs that you offer look like? Um, any of those stories, but also if somebody out there is listening and is like, hmm, that's something I could do. Right. What would you say to such a person? Um, or, or do you perceive that, by the way, as a gap that does exist and it's just not what you're focusing on? Or have you found that it's just less of a need than the, than the programs that you are offering for kids? That's a good question. So we do have a lot of adult students who study with us. Again, the core are the younger students, um, but we have people who study with us for adult bar and bat mitzvah. We have parents who want to learn because their students are learning, you know, either in their synagogue program or with us, and they're going to go to Israel. And the parents are like, I know, I do not know any Hebrew. Um, I want to be able to say the brachot, the blessings at my kids bar or bat mitzvah. And so they end up studying with us. Um, we have some interfaith families where the non-Jewish parent is interested in studying with us, not because they're becoming Jewish, but because they want to better understand what their student is learning. Um, so we see a variety of, of different learning experiences for adults. One interesting one, one of our first students, he wanted to learn biblical grammar. And I was like, seriously? Right? And <laughs> I was like, I learned biblical grammar and it was the hardest class I had in rabbinical school. Right? And so I taught him biblical grammar, which was great for me because I was still in rabbinical school and it strengthened it. But it was also such a cool thing. This, this guy from like the middle of nowhere in Ohio wanted to learn biblical grammar and didn't have a teacher to do it. So that was a really cool experience. Um, we also had a 92 year old woman in Florida who wanted to have a bat mitzvah and went back when she was a young girl. Obviously, there were not many opportunities for that. And so she called us and wanted to do online classes. So obviously, the biggest barrier was teaching her how to use Zoom. And once we taught her how to use Zoom, she studied for her bat mitzvah. We connected her with a rabbi and a cantor in Florida, and she had a bat mitzvah. And I remember one of our initial conversations was so funny. She says, and you know, it's cute little old lady Jewish voice. She says, you know what, Rabbi, I don't have too much time left being 92. So we have to do the expedited bat mitzvah track for me. And you know, she had her bat mitzvah and she did it. And she was amazing, right? So I always say that when we talk to people, we, you know, we can start at age five and we go to 95, right? And anywhere in between, because you know, one of our mottos is it's never too early or too late to have a meaningful Jewish education. You know, people take a break for lunch and can sign on with their lunch at their computer at work and do a half hour session with a teacher. You put your kids to bed and you have an opportunity to get online. Um, we actually had someone in Boston who had, I think, very young kids, like 15 month old um, child, and she wanted to read to him in Hebrew. 
and teach him Hebrew. And she didn't know Hebrew. So she would put him to sleep and then we would teach her online. And then she was able to actually start reading Hebrew stories to her son. Right. So there's just like people that are learning biblical grammar and people who want to read goodnight stories in Hebrew, right. And everything in between. Well, that's an interesting segue to what I wanted to talk about in the time that we have remaining, which is maybe more in the realm of philosophy or futurism philosophy, uh, about the the role of the internet and the digital revolution in the future of Judaism. So we know from a variety of historical revolutions in ways in which information is conveyed, scrolls, codices, the printing press, and now the internet, that these have all led to major religious reimaginations, often that have to do with the capacity of that new technological innovation to widen the group of people who are able to have access to the core material of that tradition. And so you tend to get a reform that is in some way expanding and democratizing one of the elements of the reform is that more people are able to access. But I think inevitably, one of the impacts of those reforms tend to be that the thing itself changes as a result of that access. So some of the things that you've talked about, I'm really curious to sort of probe into them, particularly with your background as a conservative rabbi, which is, you know, on the more traditional end of the existing forms of Judaism that we have. And so one of the things that you talked about struck me as really interesting, where you talked about interfaith families, particularly where the mother is not Jewish. So in the conservative movement, that would mean that the child is not Jewish unless they convert. And that what you're offering is something that synagogues have a hard time offering. Conservative synagogues have a hard time offering if they do at all to such a family, because strictly speaking, the child wouldn't be considered Jewish within that synagogue. But you, although you're you're a conservative rabbi, but you're able to offer that because you're operating through a different business model, literally. Right. So I'm curious, though, how you think that has impacted you and you know how you are a rabbi different you know, 10 years later than you might have been had you been a rabbi in a synagogue. And do you think that that experiences like that, the more and more that other people have those experiences, whether they include people starting businesses like you did or rabbis that are starting to stream services from their synagogues, you know, whatever they might be, and more and more uh, people who whether they're rabbis or or just the lay people in a synagogue who may never really have encountered such Jews too often because they never came to the synagogue, right. now start to encounter this. And, you know, will it change the thing itself? And, and how, how will it change the thing itself? Wow, that's a lot of good points and questions. Um, so the first thing I would say is as a conservative rabbi, I do struggle with this, you know, because I work with interfaith families. And it's hard when I work with a family and I know the mother's not Jewish. I have to kind of like be very careful. I, I don't want to offend people, right? Obviously, I'm a conservative rabbi. That, that is part of what it means to be a conservative rabbi is we have a definition of what we believe is Jewish. And, but according to that definition, many of my students wouldn't fit into that, right? And then I struggle with that because these families are committed to Judaism. For me to then say that child isn't Jewish enough is, is not fair in my, in my perspective under, you know, what I think. And so, you know, I had a student who I studied with for three years. I was his teacher at the beginning and his mom isn't Jewish. And we, we were studying Sukkot and it was around Sukkot. Obviously we time it with the holidays. And his assignment was to draw a picture of a sukkah that was according to all the rules. Okay. His mom called me as a mother who's not Jewish called me the next day. And she said, I need to FaceTime you. You will not believe what he did for homework. 
And I said, what do you do for homework? She said, he built a sukkah. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like with Play-Doh? He's like, she's like, no, like there's a sukkah in our front yard. So at first I'm thinking like they don't live in a Jewish neighborhood and probably people are thinking, what is this hut in the front yard? What is this kid doing? Right. His parents can't build him a tree house, but literally this kid built a sukkah, a small little sukkah with what he could find. But it was so amazing. You know, this kid who had no Judaism built a sukkah. I thought the mother was going to be like, why are you assigning this to my child? But it was so amazing and powerful. But then when it became to bar mitzvah time, I couldn't do the service. And how do I tell that to this family that I've developed such a relationship with to a kid who is so Jewish, right? And so I really struggled. And I, because I am a conservative rabbi and because this is what I've committed to, I couldn't do the service. I attended the service. I gave him a blessing, you know, but I had a reform colleague officiate the service. And that was really, really difficult for me. And, you know, in terms of the future, I do think technology is going to change what Judaism looks like. I think it already has in the 10 years that we've been doing what we're doing. But one thing I do say is that just because we make it easy to access Jewish education doesn't mean that the Jewish education is easy, right? And so, you know, you're not getting a Judaism light by doing it online with us. I'm very careful that our curriculum is meaningful and high quality because, you know, sometimes, you know, online is easier, right? And maybe it's a lighter version of learning. And I didn't want that to be the case. I don't think because you are doing it online for whatever reason that you should be getting less than what you'd be getting in person. And we've actually found from a lot of our students, both synagogue partners and unaffiliated who study with us, who have been in a Hebrew school classroom, say that they're actually getting more online because it's individualized, right? It's one-on-one -on -one for most of our students. And so what they get in half an hour of Hebrew one-on-one -on -one learning with us is far more than they would be getting in a classroom with 16 other kids with 15 other learning styles. You know, we're trying to create different ways and pathways through which people can connect and commit to being in a relationship with our program. Danny Esco, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We're going to close out our conversation with a few reminders. First is that this is one of many episodes about Jewish education and an ongoing unit of episodes. Uh, so if you haven't heard the earlier ones, make sure to flash back to them in your favorite podcast app. Uh, look at the recent episodes that we've had. And also stay tuned in the coming weeks for many more episodes on Jewish education. We're thrilled to be tackling this set of issues. Uh, so continue on the journey with us. We are going to close, as we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that you can always support us financially with a donation, and you can do that at judaismunbound.com donate with either a monthly recurring gift or just a one-time gift. So thanks so much for listening, and with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.